and welcome to another episode of The Discourse, uh, the one-on-one interview show with filmmakers, actors, other industry folks, which is part of the Playlist Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mike D'Angelo. On this episode, director Edgar Wright and writer Christy Wilson-Karens join me to discuss their new film, Last Night in Soho, which is in theaters right now, and I cannot recommend it enough. Uh, For the uninitiated, uh, Last Night in Soho follows a girl with, I guess you'd say, paranormal sensitivity named Eloise. Uh, She's moving from the English countryside to London to attend fashion school. And once she's there, she finds herself dreaming of this, you know, 60s Soho through the eyes of a young woman and trying to make, you know, uh, sense of it all and and try to understand it and, you know, fun and thrills and twists ensue. Uh, If you're a fan of Edgar, it's new territory for him because it's a bit more of a straight up thriller. Edgar tends to mash up genres a lot, and you can tell he's trying, you know, to, to tone that kind of kinetic comedy energy down a bit. Not completely. It's still There's still some fun, kind of lively elements, but, you know, it, it, it's one of the better films of the year, in my opinion, and it's, you know, it still has the technical mastery that Wright's films are known for, but he's putting it through the lens of, like, Hitchcock and De Palma, which, again, if you're an Edgar Wright fan, is really wonderful to see him trying new things and nailing it. Um, during our chat, Edgar, Christy, and I talk about the origins of Last Night in Soho, some of the fun technical filmmaking stuff from the film, and why Edgar will never again talk about a movie that he hasn't made yet. As always, The Discourse is a part of the Playlist Podcast Network, which includes The Playlist Podcast, which I'm also a part of, Be Real, Deep Focus, The Fourth Wall, and more. It can be heard on iTunes, Anchor FM, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and now Spotify. Follow us on iTunes and you'll get this podcast as well as our other shows regularly. Be sure to subscribe and drop us a comment or a rating as we do very much appreciate it. Without further delay, my conversation with Edgar Wright and Christy Wilson-Karens. Perfect. All right. Thank you both for for taking the time and spending the time with me today. I really appreciate it. Of course. So I want to just start out by getting it all out of the way and saying I'm a huge fan of the both of you. Um Edgar, you occupy two slots in my top 10 already this year uh, between this last night in Soho and the the Sparks Brothers movie. Uh, Christy adored 1917. It was my number one movie that that year that it came out. Love Penny Dreadful. So anyone associated with that? Fantastic. So I was very much anticipating uh, last night in Soho, and I'm happy to say it did not disappoint at all. I loved it. So thank you. Yeah. Just getting into where the idea and the the whole, uh, you know, just the idea of it came from, where did it start? Who looped who in? How did you guys get together? Well, I had had the idea for it for a decade or so. I'd been thinking about it for a long time in terms of, I think sort of, then there were sort of several things that sort of become the sort of the seed of the idea all sort of converging together. And um, I guess from a, a genre level, it was not so much any like one specific film, more just the sort of sense of a, a feeling that some films gave me when, you know, that I, I didn't feel quite so much in sort of um, modern horror, not to say that I, I don't like modern horror films, but more like just something about kind of the, I just sort of, um, I don't know, the dark deliciousness of Alfred Hitchcock or something. I don't mm-hmm. know. It's something about those movies, like that, that they have like a kind of, um, there's a sort of streak of wickedness in them that I find very sort of compelling. And, um, and but also just in terms of the, the sort of tone of like sort of, you know, films by Michael Powell or like Hitchcock and then and then also people that are then influenced by them. Like so, you know, obviously 
there's the kind of Mario Bava and Brian De Palma and um, and Dario Argento. Um, I'm lumping all the Italian names together. <laughs> um, so, but it is that interesting thing. That I just and and I think all of those things that there's that sense of that becoming like sort of um, psychological thrillers or horrors becoming sort of operatic or expressionistic. That I I really love that. But separately from that, like then, and I guess the real inspiration for it is two things. Is one, I was really a, sort of become obsessed with the 60s through my parents record collection first because they had a box of records from the 1960s but they they didn't have they seemed to stop buying records when, when me and my brother were born so there were no no <laughs> 70s records and also I don't remember ever seeing them play their records they obviously sort of stopped playing records as well they worked two jobs and like sort of it was like I, I remember sort of being left in the house with the record player and the records for me to just kind of like play them on my own and listen to the white album like a million times um as a seven-year-old <laughs> and as a seven-year-old when you realize how to use the knowing how to use the vinyl player is as a seven-year-old learning how to skip over revolution number no. nine because it's too scary um <laughs> although weirdly revolution nine number no. nine comes back into this film in a strange way so, but then like in later years, becoming sort of then obsessed with the 60s through um, music and music first and then film and then like art and fashion. And then, you know, in, 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 in recent, more recent years, having this recurring time travel fantasy about going back to the 60s, sort of as a cultural tourist, wouldn't that be amazing to go back and be at this gig or see this show or go to that club or see that film in opening like weekend? But then the more I sort of thought about it, I started thinking, why am I constantly like daydreaming about going back in time? And you start to feel that, you know, you have a problem. And then, you know, nostalgia itself is kind of like a a complaint in a way in terms of it's and it's a failure to deal with the modern day. And obviously, you know, there's an element where I mean, so many sort of um, so much of culture at the moment is all tied into nostalgia and, and you can't start to can't help thinking that it's a retreat from modern life. Um, so there was that aspect. And then the other big aspect, and then this is, um, this is where it comes to kind of meeting Christy as well, because it's kind of, this is where our, our interests overlap. Coming to London, you know, as a 20 year old is such a kind of like um, intimidating experience, but also Soho, the area I have spent like more time in Soho than any other neighborhood um, in London and probably more time in Soho than any like couch in any apartment I've ever lived um, and it is a place that's kind of like sort of compelling and exciting and disturbing in equal measure and the sort of shadow of the 60s like looms very large there's always this feeling that it was um, the, it's, it's cool now but it was never cooler than it was in the 60s and then also it's impossible to kind of be in Soho and completely kind of um and not be aware of the, the darker side of it. So with all that in mind, it's somewhere that then me and Christy spend a lot of time. And then basically how we met was in 2016. So I'd been thinking about, sorry, just to give the full pre and then I promise I'm going to let Christy tell the rest of the story. <laughs> but so the full pre before Christy comes into it is that I had pitched this story, the entire story with the same ending and everything, to like Naira Park and Rachel Pryor, my producers. And then we set it up initially with film four when Tessa Ross was still there. And because I was going off to do the world's end um, and also because there were several elements in the film that I didn't want to enter into lightly and, and wanted to kind of like ground 
what my perception of the 60s and the darker side of the 60s was. We hired an amazing researcher, Lucy Pardy, who just won a BAFTA as a casting director for the film Rocks. We hired her to do like research on the kind of every facet of the story. And she produced this enormous phone book sort of tome of research that was just incredible and fascinating and harrowing. And so for many years, that's what I I had is I had the story and I had this research and I had a lot of the songs that I wanted to use in the movie, or at least the kind of the, the sense of the songs. And then in 2016, I had lunch with Sam Mendes and apropos of nothing, he said, have you ever met Christy Wilson Cairns? And I said, no. He goes, oh, you guys are getting like a house on fire. And now enter Christy Wilson Cairns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so after I bribed Sam so that he would introduce me to Edgar, right. um, Edgar, you know, and I went for drinks and we happened to go for drinks in Soho, you know, our, our, our home turf. And um, we were drinking opposite the strip club I used to live above. Uh, and I was quite nervous and babbling because I was a big fan of Edgar. So I was like, oh, I used to live over there. It was really loud. Um, and I worked at that bar around the corner, which is actually the took in the bar that's in the film that we, we shot in. So I, I, um, I kind of was, you know, giving my credentials as a Soho person. Uh, and Edgar said to me, he's like, you know, I have this idea, you know, I have this idea set in Soho. Can we go on a night out? Uh, can we see some of the like you know the the seedier bits of Soho which I knew quite well uh, and um, and we did we went on a very fun pub crawl and in this little dank basement bar he told me the entire story and I remember kind of just sitting there like you know holding onto the table uh, having my socks totally blown off by just this incredible tale and and he was just telling me as a friend it wasn't until about I think nine months later right before Christmas he phoned me and he said, do you remember that story? And I thought about it every day because I, I literally walk through Soho every day. Uh, I'd been haunted by it. And um, he said, do you want to write it with me? And that's a very quick and easy yes. <laughs> of course. To give some ironic political context, the night that we went out <laughs> drinking was the night of Brexit. And the, the two people who voted to remain in Europe, there was also an element of us drowning our sorrows as well. And also not, not you know, kind of um, <laughs> unrelated, but obviously Brexit is like our, our country's attempt to disappear into the past. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the collaboration itself is is a first time, as you mentioned. Um, I'm curious what you both kind of feel the other brought to it. Like, Edgar, what do you think Christy brought in the script phase that you wouldn't have necessarily brought yourself? And, and Christy, what do you think Edgar brought out of it that you just weren't anticipating? Well, I think the great thing was is that there's a perspective that Christy has on the story that I don't. That's yeah. the perspective that I have on the story that Christy doesn't. And then what's really great is that our shared experiences. And so it might seem sort of strange given sort of how fantastical the film becomes, but there's so much of it that comes from personal experience, even just in dialogue, um, you know. So that's that in a way, like we had I we had the story, and I maybe Christy, you could talk about sort of, you know when you, you came in and we talked about the story, but like the thing of actually writing scenes is always so great because so much of it just comes from, even in the 60s scenes, it comes from sort of like personal experiences. And, um, and, and, and that is always something that, especially when you're trying to ground a film, the script, and also kind of tackle things that scares and disturbs you it's amazing kind of how much comes out, you know, it's not like, it's not like it's beyond like, there's obviously elements as well. Like in Eloise, I'm not an 18 year old Cornish girl, but I had the experience of 
coming to London as a 20 year old and, and, and going to art college and not feeling rich or cool or connected enough. And then we also kind of happened to have my mother, like sort of went to art college and designed clothes. My sister-in-law came from Cornwall, the same County as Eloise to London and studied fashion design at college. And then Christy, your mother and like um, grandmother both kind of had a, a, a background in sort of, yeah, yeah. They were both seamstresses. And actually the newspaper dress from the opening, it came from my, there's loads of pictures of my mum when she was little with these like extraordinary dresses that are just, you know, patterns cut out of newspaper. Yeah. I mean, I suppose like we had so much in common of being these sort of, I wasn't necessarily a countryman. I came from Scotland. I moved from Glasgow to London, but just this feeling of, of getting somewhere that's so cool and that you've always wanted to be. And this idea, you might, you know, get up down there and then totally reinvent yourself and be this person you'd always dreamed. And then when you get there, it's really hard and you suddenly go all quiet and are a bit nervous. Um, and I always felt like a massive loser. I always felt like such a loser <laughs> in London, especially for the first couple of years. And, um, and I think that those sort of experiences are really universal. Um, I'm not saying everyone's a loser like me, but like many people are. And and just this Guilty. idea of like, <laughs> yeah, just this idea of like going and trying to kind of like reinvent yourself uh, and especially going to, I went to film school, you went to art school, you know, it's a really like tough place to just turn up and be like, oh, wow, I'm, I'm already behind. I, I don't know all the German expressionist directors, <laughs> like that kind of thing. And then, like, actually, when it came into the like the writing process, I mean, what didn't Edgar bring? <laughs> you know, he he's someone who had had the story in his head for ten years, um, and he's also, you know, an extraordinary visual director. Um, and so, like, literally, as we were writing the script, sometimes you'd be describing the shots, the scenes. There'd be dialogue, there'd be drawings, you know, everything like that. And so, I suppose, yeah, he he, I'd say probably most of it. <laughs> <laughs> And, and without going into heavy spoilers, I, I know we want to avoid that as much as possible for people that haven't seen it. Um, there is this amazing like one or dance sequence that is is featured pretty heavily in some of the promo stuff. And I'm sure you're being asked about it left and right. But it's it's a real like joy to to kind of witness it all come together. And I'm wondering, was that all like one take or were, were there camera tricks employed? And also, is there going to be an opportunity for us to like, see everyone dancing around the camera like in the like trying to figure out the the shot itself yeah I mean the the thing with the conception with those shots actually because there's a lot of shots like that in the movie is Mm -hmm. in a strange way one of the things that was the idea with those shots is like to give a reason to kind of do these unbroken takes was that the longer you could do something in an unbroken take with something magical happening right in front of your eyes it was it was important to kind of um, I think because at that moment in the film you're seeing a dream through Thomas and Mackenzie's eyes, and so the longer that those things can be unbroken or sort of like happening, you're 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 basically sort of like not breaking the spell by cutting. And that particular shot is basically um, it is like one shot. It's an unbroken Steadicam tape. There's one part of it that's like a sort of pass where we did like a second pass on it, but it wasn't motion control and it wasn't like, there's no green screen. We just kind of did like a second pass of the same thing. And I was kind of staggered that it worked as well as it did. But weirdly enough, like that, and and in the script, I think it was like written as there being one transition like that. And then strangely, when I was rehearsing with Jennifer White, our amazing choreographer, we had worked out the one transition at the start of it. 
And then she said, oh, and I've, I've done some other options. And I saw that what she'd done, and, and when you're in a, when you're in a um, rehearsal room, you tend to have like a video camera with you. So because you have a video camera, you tend to just kind of shoot it like it's one shot. And then I was just watching these transitions, like the other options. And I said to Jess, I said, I think we should, we should just do all of it, right? <laughs> like, it's like, because it's like, if we can pull this off and do like then five Texas switches in a row, and it's kind of like, it's really giddy and intoxicating. And, you know, it's supposed to reflect at that point in the movie that like, you know, that Eloise is, is getting a contact high of this amazing night out. And, you know, it's, and the emotion is so high that you're switching between the two women. It was just sort of like one of those things that in the rehearsal room, you're thinking like, well, if we could pull this off, it would look really special. And then really the sort of the, the finished shot or the, the, or the unbroken take, we rehearsed it like in an Ealing Town Hall first with like three dancers and the camera operator, Chris Baines. And then we did, had a dress rehearsal on a Saturday, which I think is one of the first things that Anya Taylor-Joy did on the film. <laughs> then she came straight from the set of Emma into this like rehearsal. <laughs> it's kind of like coming straight in, like sort of like no, no break, straight into like a really complicated shop. And we, we rehearsed it with Anya, Matt and Thomason and Chris Baines, the steady camera operator. The key thing with a shot like this is that the camera operator is the fourth dancer. Because if he's not in the right place at the right time, the shot just does not work. And having done like TV and music videos in the past, where it's always the kind of cost-cutting exercise is like not having the camera operator in the rehearsal. And then on the day of the shoot, like having to teach the camera operator the choreography. I'd, I'd been in that terrible position a couple of times where it's like, get the steady cam operator in the rehearsal. So he was amazing. So it was actually, it's people like say about that shot, how many takes did you do? Mm-hmm. How many days did that take? And I said, well, I, as I remember, I don't think it was more than like 10 takes. It felt like it was probably about 10 takes because we had done a rehearsal and so we knew what we were doing. There's one funny part to that was um, Chung Chung Hoon, our amazing South Korean DP. For the first couple of takes, he was um, he would have this kind of little mirrored blade and a torch and he would shine the torch into the into the blade and, and flash the lens, which is one of his tricks that you see throughout the movie. And he said, uh, I'll, I'll do that during the shot. <laughs> so then you've got like Matt Smith in the middle and your Taylor Joy and Thomason, the steady cam operator doing a big circumference around. And then Chung Chung Hoon running a much bigger circumference around, trying to sort of flash the lens with his flare. And after three takes of running further than anybody else, he came up to me and just went out of breath, goes, oh, uh, do it in post, do it in post. <laughs> <laughs> That the is first couple of takes of that had these kind of cool flares, but then like Chung realized I can't run that fast around everybody. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, I, I only have a couple minutes left with you and I'm pretty sure everybody at the playlist would choke me if I didn't ask about two projects and that's Baby Driver 2 because we all love Baby Driver and uh, the untitled Taika Waititi Star Wars project that Christy's working on. So uh, what are the statuses of those and, and if you can tease anything at all? I've, I've, I've developed this new policy um, because, you know, I didn't make a movie once and I have no regrets about that, not making the movie. The only regrets I have is about doing print interviews before I made the movie. So like the sort of the thing that got let, I didn't make the movie, but there are still interviews about me making the movie and talking about it before. And, and those are more embarrassing to me than anything else. So I've made it my policy now to never talk about a movie until it's in the can. So what he's saying is Ant-Man is still coming. 
and, and so is Baby Driver too. <laughs> and Christy, can you tease anything about Star Wars? I mean, if I if I said a single thing, Mickey Mouse was burst into this hotel room and attack me, yeah. and that is a childhood fear of mine. And so I, you know, I can't afford the therapy to go through that trauma. Or Taika would just pop up behind you, which might be a pleasant thing. You never know. This is why Mickey wears the gloves. It is because so that he doesn't bruise his knuckles. <laughs> That is outstanding. Well, I, I have a million other questions, but I know you guys have uh, uh, no time left. So I will just say thank you. And I loved last night in Soho. I can't wait to watch it again with fresh eyes. Oh, thank you. you know, I'll show, eventually we'll show you that aerial shot of the dance number. It's, I can't it's wait. Quite, it's quite something. I've, I've already purchased the Mondo vinyl pressing and I, I very much look forward to those, those extra scenes on the, the Blu-ray. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Yeah, have a good one, guys. Thank you.